This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When is an attack terrorism and the attacker a terrorist? So far, that label has not been applied to the gunman who opened fire on a Thornton Walmart last week or to the Texas church shooter. Nor has much been made of their religious backgrounds. Why don't we hear now from two researchers who study how attacks are perceived by the public and portrayed in the media. Aaron Carnes is a criminologist at the University of Alabama, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And Brian Arva studies terrorism and the responses to it at the University of Maryland. And hi, Brian. Hello, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for talking to us. Aaron, is there a widely agreed-upon definition of terrorism, first off? Sure. Certainly there's been some debate amongst academics and the policy world over the years about what exactly is defined as terrorism. Generally, it's accepted that one of the key hallmarks of terrorism is that there is a political motivation. Um, Sometimes that's thought of more broadly as political, economic, religious or social motivation. Um, In terms of my research, I rely on the definition that's provided from the Global Terrorism Database. This database uh, is interesting because it considers the Columbine shooting in Colorado in 1999 terrorism. Uh, So is, according to its definitions, the shooting at a Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs in 2015. And your, your work, Aaron, looks at how much media coverage different attacks get. What have you found are the factors that influence how much and what kind of coverage attacks get? Sure. So we looked at all terrorist attacks according to the Global Terrorism Database from 2006 to 2015 here in the United States. And we were only looking at print media coverage. Um, What we found is that there are a couple of factors that consistently impact the amount of coverage that an attack is receiving. The thing that has the most significant impact is whether or not the perpetrator is Muslim. So when a perpetrator is Muslim, the attacks are receiving about 350 percent more coverage, but certainly other factors matter, whether or not the perpetrator is arrested. So if the perpetrator is captured and arrested, there's more coverage throughout the criminal justice system. Um, When attacks are on the government or against law enforcement, we see more coverage. And then as there are more fatalities, we see more coverage as well. What do you think the Muslim thing's about? Well, I think it's a really interesting and complex question. Um, you know, drawing from the larger literature in social psychology, political science, and sociology, we see that the notion of in-group and out-group perceptions, that people perceive those who they think are more like them to be sort of in a more positive light. And conversely, people perceive you know, those they think are more different more negatively. So this might be drawing out some of the overcoverage of attacks when the perpetrator is Muslim and viewed perhaps as more of a quote-unquote other by large segments of the population. You'd expect that to be especially true in a non-majority Muslim nation like the United States, I gather. Yes. So 350 percent more coverage if the attacker was Muslim. Now, if you are the casual observer paying attention to that coverage, you might think that Muslims are disproportionately behind attacks. Is that the case? So I think it's a kind of a complex question. So when you think about you know, this universe of terrorist attacks in the U.S. over this 10-year span, we see that about 13 percent or so are perpetrated by Muslims. So that's certainly not the majority of the attacks. Now, those attacks tend to be more lethal and still 
12 and a half, 13 percent of the attacks, that's still disproportionate in relation to the Muslim population in the United States. So it's a little bit complex on how to answer that. Mm. But let me cut to the chase here. Who in this country is the greatest threat? That is to say, if you look at past attacks, who's most often perpetrating? So if we're thinking about threat in terms of the number of attacks, about half of the attacks in that 10-year period here in the U.S. have come from far right-wing extremists. Though, if we think about threat in terms of the number of fatalities, we're seeing that there's higher fatality rates from attacks perpetrated by Muslims. Higher fatality rates. Does that mean total number? Um, In terms of the total number, I think it's about 50 percent. But those attacks, on average, each individual attack tends to have a higher uh, number of fatalities than attacks by non-Muslims. Okay. It is often that these attacks by Muslims are defined as terrorism because there are political declarations made in their wake. I I did this for ISIS, for instance. But what you're saying is Mm -hmm. that though those attacks tend to be deadlier in this country, in terms of the overall number of specific attacks, that's largely what white people, I guess you're saying. Yes. In terms of the number of attacks, yes. Well, I want to bring in Brian Arva, who studies terrorism and the responses to it at the University of Maryland. I appreciate your patience, uh, Brian. Your work looks really more at the content of the coverage, how the media talks about these events. And you looked specifically at the attacks done by Dylan Roof and Omar Mateen. So Roof killed nine African-Americans at a Methodist church in South Carolina. Mateen killed 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Why did you choose to compare those two events? So my co-authors and I wanted to look at the content of coverage across attacks based on identity. And we figured that the Omar Mateen Pulse nightclub shooting and the Dylan Roof church shooting in South Carolina were a good comparative case study because they had a lot of similarities. They were both lone attackers. They both used guns as their weapons. And both of the attacks could plausibly be considered hate crimes. So we figured that because of these similarities, we should see some similarities in the news coverage as well. And that was not the case. There were very different types of media coverage based on the identity of the attacker in these cases. Well, let's dive into what that looks like. I'll say that both of them, by the way, Dylan Roof and Omar Mateen, were were born in the United States, right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, what did you notice? So we noticed that the amount of times that words like terrorism and terrorist and religion and radical appeared in these news articles was much, much higher for all the articles that were discussing the Pulse nightclub shooting carried out by Omar Mateen. Whereas with Dylan Roof, we saw more things talking about mental health and whether or not the attack was terrorism. So for Omar Mateen, It was much more of a different frame. It was looking into his religion and his connections. How was he radicalized? Whereas with Dylan Roof, it was much more um, objective in the covering in terms of the attack occurred at Emanuel AME Church, the type of weapons that he used. It, It wasn't speculating on when was Dylan Roof radicalized or did he have relations with, you know, radical groups? And the thing about this is that Dylan Roof said that he wanted to start a race war. Um, And, you know, he had very strong connections in terms of social media presence to right-wing extremist groups, whereas Omar Mateen, the main connection was that he said on the phone that he was making the attack in the name of ISIS. But besides that, there was very little to connect him to um, ISIS or any extremist groups. The subtext, which is not so subtle here, is that even though Dylan Roof had many more apparent terrorist ties 
and again, hearkening back to the, the definition of terrorism that we established at the beginning, than Omar Mateen. And yet Omar Mateen was the subject of much more coverage invoking that term terrorist. Why is that? I think it goes back to what Aaron had talked about with in-groups and out-groups, potentially. It's hard for me to speculate because I haven't looked at all the cases, but we do see in just anecdotally that a lot of the coverage when there's a Muslim perpetrator, we get more talk immediately about it's terrorism, you know, talking about Islam and their religion and where were they radicalized, were they radicalized online, talking about you know, what mosque did they attend, trying to find out those types of things. Whereas when it, it's a non-Muslim attacker, people seem to be much more cautious in using words like terrorism and terrorist. Aaron Carnes, again, criminologist at the University of Alabama, can you blame people for that? In other words, the highest profile attack on U.S. soil, I suppose, since Pearl Harbor was the attacks of 9-11 perpetrated by Muslims. Isn't that sort of stuck in people's minds and thus influencing how they see attacks from then on? Certainly. And I mean, 9-11, of course, had a huge impact on public perception of terrorism, not just here in the United States, but around the globe. And it's probably you know, difficult, if not impossible, to really quantify what that impact is. But building off something that Brian had said, that my colleagues and I have actually conducted experimental studies where we control everything about a hypothetical attack. So we tell participants, they read a story about an attack that happened, and we're able to control all of the factors. So we control how many people were killed, we control how, how many perpetrators there were, what um, the target was, what the weapon was. And one thing that we varied in these experiments was whether at the end of the attack, the perpetrator said Heil Hitler or Allahu Akbar. And what we found is that when the perpetrators were saying a phrase that sounds like it was an attack committed in the name of Islam, people were significantly more likely to call that terrorism than an absolutely identical attack where the perpetrator said Heil Hitler. And given the definition of terrorism, which is politically or socially motivated, there's no doubt that uh, saying Heil, Heil Hitler would be considered terrorism. Certainly, from the you know, from an academic perspective, from a definitional perspective, certainly that falls within the framework of what we consider to be terrorism. But we don't see that as clearly in public consciousness. And it's also, in all fairness, that's not the only thing that matters. You know, people thought we're more likely to say it was terrorism when the perpetrators used a bomb versus guns, when there are multiple perpetrators versus a lone actor, when the target was a government building versus a synagogue. Um, and this is similar research that colleagues of ours. And Harvard have done, and they've looked at even more sort of different attack factors and found some of these same patterns that perpetrator identity absolutely matters. But there are other things about the attack that impact whether a member of the public thinks it's terrorism or not that have nothing to really do with what the actual definition of terrorism is. What makes this work important, like not just purely academic? In other words, most of us don't live in an academic world and don't compare our, you know, everyday definitions with what academics use. Why do you think this work matters beyond your department, say? Um, Brian, how would you answer that? And then I'll have you jump in, Aaron. So I think it's relevant and important for a number of reasons. Framing and the, the academic work done on framing does show that negative portrayal of Muslims in the media can have a significant effect on things like people's views on immigration policy, people's views on whether or not some civil rights should be taken away from Muslim Americans when looking at terrorist attacks, 
whether or not America should intervene in, in foreign Muslim countries. So there, there are a lot of academic studies that have shown that negative framing of Muslims in the media can have a negative effect on other things as well. And then secondly, there's been a lot of research done to try to see if there's a relationship between religion and religiosity and terrorism, uh-huh. and little to no relationship has ever really been found. So if we're trying to find populations that are more susceptible and more likely to be radicalized or engaged in violence, then if we're looking at religious communities, we might be looking in the wrong places. Something that might be a better area to look at is people that have, have a history of domestic violence hmm. or or were abused. Because a lot of the attacks that have occurred that it recently, even in Texas with Devin Patrick Kelly, he had a history of domestic violence. A lot of the other people both Omar Mateen and Dylan Roof had a history of domestic violence or were abused themselves. So this might be a better area to look at if we're trying to find effective countering violent extremist methods to dealing with communities that are more susceptible to being radicalized or more susceptible to engaging in violence. Aaron, how do you answer the question of why you do this work? Sure. So I think, I mean, building off of what Brian said, that we also see that these negative perceptions or portrayals or inaccurate portrayals of um, where threats are coming from, this can lead to increases in hate crimes, can lead to changes in counterterrorism preferences amongst the public, both here in the United States and abroad, as well as uh, beyond just the public level at the politician level as well. So if we're focusing our attention um, in the counterterrorism space specifically on Islamist extremists, we're missing, you know, that that is, of course, a threat, but we're missing a large swath of the threat um, that's not being focused on, such as from far right wing extremists, from far left wing extremists. And, you know, by focusing on just one aspect of the threat, it's really not helping us to address the problem overall. Can I interject for a second? Oh, yeah, sure. With regard to what we're talking about right now, that might be interesting to your listeners. They found a number of Bibles in the apartment of Scott Ostrom who committed the attack that you mentioned before at Walmart, where he walked into Walmart and he uh, killed three people. Here in Colorado, now, yeah. Yes, in Colorado, yeah. And, and I had seen very, very little about this in the media, where if they had gone in there and found a bunch of Qurans instead of Bibles, I feel like this might have been a, a much larger news story on a, you know, at least a local scale, but a national scale most likely as well. I want to thank you both for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Brian Arva is with START at the University of Maryland. That's the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Aaron Carnes is a criminologist at the University of Alabama. When pitcher Roy Halladay died Tuesday in a plane crash, it came as a shock, especially to baseball fans who marvel at the high points of his career. Like in 2010, he was with the Philadelphia Phillies and became only the second player in postseason history to throw a no-hitter. Halladay is one strike away, the 0-2, a bouncer, Ruiz, in time, Roy Halladay! has thrown a no-hitter! But his former high school coach, Jim Capra, has different memories. Capra coached him at Arvada West, where still today banners proclaim Halliday's accomplishments. The school even retired his number. And uh, Jim, welcome to the program. I'm sorry for your loss. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, he was only 40. Um, he became one of just six pitchers in Major League history to win the Cy Young Award for the game's best pitcher in both the American and National Leagues. Uh, that was in the same season as his playoff no-hitter, retiring all 27 batters he faced. Uh, Coach, when did you know that Halliday would reach that kind of excellence? Well, I first met Roy when uh, he was in his eighth grade year going into his ninth grade year. And uh, each year he just continued to uh, improve and, and work. And uh, with his size and uh, his ability that he had, his talents, you could tell that uh, he had a potential to be a pretty special uh, baseball player. You met him in eighth grade. So that would have put him in middle school? Were you were you sort of on the lookout for yes. him or what? Um, no, actually, I mean, I knew a little bit about him, uh-huh. uh, but we kind of started working out and throwing, uh, previous to, uh, him getting into high school. And I met with his parents, uh, who were great supporters of, uh, Roy and myself and our baseball program. And then we just continued to go from there. Uh, what were your thoughts the first time you saw him throw for you? Uh, he was, uh, for his age, he was, uh, very tall. I think he was probably 6'2 or 6'3 at the time, uh, tall and lanky, uh, had a good build to him for, uh, I guess a 14 or a 15 year old. And, uh, just, you could tell by his arm action and the way he, uh, handled himself, uh, that he had a lot of potential to uh, grow and, and uh, hopefully become the player he was. He had a lot of potential to grow as an athlete, but also literally grow. He became six foot six, I think, and 225 pounds eventually. Yes. Did he play varsity right away? He played, uh, we had a pretty good team his freshman year, which was uh, uh, 92 and 93. We had a pretty good team. Uh, He did play right away. Uh, he was our, our number three pitcher, actually, but for a freshman, he was the first freshman to ever uh, play varsity oh. at Arvada West, which is a, a fairly large school in the Denver area. And from there, it just kind of took off, and he became our number one as a sophomore, and obviously, junior year, we uh, we were upset uh, in the playoffs our sophomore year, our junior year. Obviously, we won the state championship, which he threw the semifinal and then closed out the final. And then our uh, his senior year, we lost to uh, Cherry Creek in the in the finals. Uh, he pitched the semifinals and then the last two innings of the finals. Gosh, I, I'm amazed by your memory. I have to say that you can even <laughs> conjure up those dates, and then uh, all the iterations uh, is a, a testament to to what's in your head. Uh, when uh, Roy Halladay was just 13, he'd started a relationship with Bus Campbell, one of Colorado's yep. legendary pitching coaches. And yes, you know, today we hear a, a lot of uh, tension exists between high school coaches, as you were then, and private coaches. Uh, did that tension exist around Roy Halliday? It did not. Uh, and I think that that was a uh, unique situation because you're you're correct. There is a lot of 
of uh, tension between high school coaches and uh, club and I guess what you would call uh, professional coaches. But uh, the thing about uh, Roy and uh, Bus Campbell is they would always contact me and they would they would ask you know would you like to come do you want to come and work out with us do you mind if we do it um here's what we're working on so uh and obviously there was no charge i mean myself and bus campbell and the other people that worked with roy uh you know did it did it for the love of the game not for uh money in our pocket it sounds so, like you were rather accepting, though, that he was getting some outside help and uh, maybe even appreciative of how that might well, elevate the game at, at Arvada West. I, I uh, didn't want to get to the point, and I did, I've did. i never been um, a type of coach where I'm a know-it-all and <laughs> think that uh, I know more than this person does or you don't need to go to that person. Buzz Campbell is one of the most respected uh, pitching coaches in uh, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think also is as important the way that he kind of handled the situations. Uh, so, yes, I, I was wide open to to get Roy uh, additional help. We're talking about Roy Halliday, the ace pitcher who died earlier this week and who attended Arvada West High School, where Jim Capra was his baseball coach. Capra's now at Adams State University in Alamosa. So uh, Halliday goes on to the Toronto Blue Jays. They took him with the 17th pick of the 1995 draft. But he was not an immediate success because after his major league debut, he was sent back to the minors. Did you talk with him much during that time, which I I imagine was probably pretty difficult? Well, I've I've told the story uh, several times, which uh, tells the character of his his family and of Roy. uh, But his... Uh, major league debut was in Tampa against the, the uh, at that time it was the Tampa Rays. Uh, his dad, his current wife, myself, his mom, and I think one or two other people, they flew us down to Tampa uh-huh. to watch that game. And he had an extraordinary game for a for a debut. And, and then I think the last game of the year that season. He threw. He lost his no hitter against Detroit in the ninth inning. So he he grew the ladder quickly. But you're right. He went down as far as to single A. Oh wow. Okay. Which I'm I'm sure that is not the path that he would have envisioned for himself. Uh, but not a path he continued on because he did quite well, of course. Well, it, it's not always that uh, easy traveled road. Right. It, it definitely wasn't for. For Roy either, but uh, that the type of person he is that be able to overcome those difficulties and uh, regain his confidence and become the pitcher he was. I want to say that uh, Halliday was flying his small plane off Florida's Gulf Coast when he crashed. And um, I've seen reports that he learned to fly when he was in high school. So do you remember that going on at the same time? Well, his his dad was a commercial pilot oh. uh, for Leprino uh, Foods, and I know that uh, uh, his dad had his own plane, and uh, Roy was very interested in flying, and I believe, if 
five or six years ago is when he actually got his his pilot license. But I do remember him and his dad really having that love of flying. Hmm. You you doing okay today, Jim? Uh, I am. I am. It's just uh, at night when I when I go to bed or after I watch the news, it's uh, just like a lot of other things that go on in our society. It's just something you don't believe in, you know, why it happened and how it happened and uh, just tragic situation. Thank you for sharing your memories with us. Oh, no problem. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you uh, recognizing uh, Roy as a, a big part of Colorado baseball and national baseball. Jim Capper there, he's now the baseball coach at Adams State University in Alamosa, and before that, he coached Roy Halliday at Arvada West High School. Halliday went on to become arguably the best player Colorado's ever produced, and he died Tuesday in a plane crash, as we said, over the Gulf of Mexico. He was 40. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The new film, Amy and Sophia, is about invisible wounds and how we heal them. It debuts this weekend at the Denver Film Festival, and it was directed by Adam Lipsius of Denver, who used an unusual special effect throughout the film. He joins host Nathan Heffel. Adam, welcome. Hey, thank you. You What a great description, by the way. I love that. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm going to steal that, (laughs) Ryan. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> this film, uh, of course, uses a lot of those uh, interesting uh, uh, technology animation. We'll talk to that in, in just a second. But we learn very quickly in this film through flashbacks of the childhood trauma that has wounded these two young women. Uh, Sophia lost her parents in a car accident. Amy was raped. How are they coping or, or, or really not coping with this trauma? So let me just uh, belatedly say spoiler alert. Um, yeah, Amy. <laughs> um, so uh, and, and one other thing that I, I want to clarify, even though there's a technological element to the special effects, obviously it's projected on a screen. It's yeah. not real. Um, we did everything so low tech. I mean, we had to almost reinvent the process because when we were doing our initial tests you know using photoshop and a lot of gimmickry it looked it looked good it looked good but it didn't have that organic analog texture it just didn't feel right and to convey the emotion of the scenes to their utmost i we we actually to a certain extent pioneered a lot of new techniques in watercolor animation that I don't think somebody's going to yell at me and be like, no, what about that movie? <laughs> but I don't think has ever, have ever been done before. So it really was, it was almost a, a lowering of, of the quality in a sense to make it more gritty and real or? It was going old school. I see. Yeah. It was going old school with new tools. So back to these two women, they're, they're dealing with some pretty heavy issues and they've been dealing with them for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And that, um, that was a tremendous responsibility for for me and for everyone in this process on the crew and the cast to contend with with not only those their issues as victims but also to represent the 
perpetrators of the crime in ways that were, uh, God, I I really don't want to say empathetic, but if you're gonna if you're gonna portray someone who does those things, you you've got to enter that mindset to a certain extent. You can't. You can't objectify them. You can't twist your mustache and say, "Ah, oh, ha, ha, ha. I mean, you can, right? But that would. But that's stick. a changing of the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 to be as true and as real as possible, without being gratuitous or graphic. I mean, it, we, we were constantly walking this very. It, it, I wanted to say fine line, but really like high tension wire. Well, but it brings up a lot of things, especially when this film is hitting it. it revelation of sexual assault, the shootings in, in Thornton, Las Vegas, Texas. How do these two characters embody the pain that a lot of people may experience? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I, I, it, we're, I think, an especially timely story right now, especially given what's going on in Hollywood. Um, you know, the Weinstein, Weinstein. affair in particular. And this story, which is a female-led story, I I, uh, I I feel lucky, but also somewhat out of place, being the one to sort of deliver it to the screen. Um, Emma Rain Walker, who who wrote the the film, worked with me intimately through throughout development and and post production. I um, mean, she plays Sophia as well. I I, I feel like this was a uh, it was a it was a nice m- marriage. Of, of sorts, bringing her point of view as well as my point of view and being able to navigate each character's journey. Hmm. Um, but in terms of them being representative of, of the invisible wounds in our society, yeah, that's that's what this film is about. And it's about... Uh, in fact, I was just talking to a good friend who, who'd suffered some abuse about this and is was wondering if she could come to the film... This morning, like an hour sure. ago, we—I I, don't—I don't think there's such a thing as a happy ending in a story like this. But there is, there is the ability to turn the page. There is the ability to start a new chapter, and providing that kind of resolution was 100% our goal. And I and I hope, I hope audiences feel like we we have because these two women they find each other and yeah. and and they they experience things together i i want to take a listen to a clip from the film where they first meet uh they're on uh they're on sophia's lawn and they're trying to get amy to take this brush let's listen here how do you do that it's amazing <laughs> the brush guides me my colors create the magic. No, the magic. Oh, no, I'm good. You can be in any world. No, I'm good. I'll watch you. Seriously. Take it. Well, how do you know what to paint? Don't think. Let your emotions paint the colors for you. Yo, I don't feel anything, so... It's the watercolors, the painting, which uh, Sophia is is seeing around her. The, the watercolor, they essentially come to life in, in, her, in her eyes. Yeah. But Amy isn't getting that. No, no, and it, and and it's funny that scene. Of course, I'm I'm flashing back to the challenges of shooting that with with you know, no rehearsal and losing light and everything else. And I actually I, I insisted that we rehearse it, and I was driving the crew nuts. But I had to get to 
some truth. And, and it was, it was in- so pivotal in this in this film. Yeah, I think this is this is a major turning point in the movie. Maybe the major turning point in the movie. Yeah, anybody can say, you know, why? Yeah, yeah, and 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 it needed to. The scene needed to break. It needed. It needed to have a, a truthful core around which the whole scene and, and to a certain extent their entire relationship would revolve. And Allie Rodney, um, in her remarkable screen debut as Amy, she she was asking me, she, she said, I don't know if I can get there. And, and I said, I said, well, first off, where is there? And um, and she said, I don't know if I can get to the point where I accept that I see this stuff. And I said, well, why would you accept that you see this stuff if, if that's not, if it's not truthful, if it's not, if it's not integral. And all of a sudden she felt liberated. She was like, oh, 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 I don't have, there's no, there's no fixed point in space and time where I need to emotionally, I don't have to hit a seven. Right. I don't have to hit a 9.2. There's no scale. It's about what's, what's real. And being open to that. I, it, to a certain extent, I think made the film perhaps a more cathartic experience for the actors and and hopefully for for the audiences as well because there there's really no artifice, there's no pretense. I mean, right? It's fake. Every every movie you make is fake, but it was coming from such a point of truth for these women and for everyone on the cast and crew that it there's an immediacy. There's a there, there's like a breathy realism at work, and and I and I hope it does justice to the story. There is that realism, but there also is that fantasy, which you see through the watercolor techniques, uh, the animation of this film. But but I think a bigger thing here is that art is seen in this film as a healing force. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, at one in the same moment, it's it's Sophia's escape, and so in that in that respect, it isn't necessarily healing. You know, she's suffering from something called fantasy-prone personality disorder, which is uh, an imaginary refuge that many victims and sufferers of abuse and trauma find a temporary, you know, refuge in. Right, a way to cope with things. Yeah, but it isn't isn't as real. And that's, you know, that's a tension in her life. And, and, but, but it is... Magical. It is curative being able to put what you've gone through in some kind of context. Again, to be able to turn the page on it and live a full, complete, rich life, which so many of the victims of this kind of abuse find hard to do. So so our mission in this, through their friendship, was to enable these women and people who have suffered things like they have to turn the page. Sophia's grandfather in this movie is played by the well-known actor Julian Glover, who's been in Game of Thrones and Indiana Jones. His on-screen wife is his real wife, uh, Isla Blair, another veteran actor. Um, you were saying these two actresses who play these characters are are relatively new to, to film. How was that dynamic like? You have the classic, these longtime actors being with these relatively new actors. Uh, mercifully, it was... Uh, that was the, the the that was the strength that was the spine of our production. Their relationships with one another 
really enabled us to make this movie, right? Because everything else was going wrong around us. Um, you know, I was joking that, you know, it rained every day except the days that it poured. I mean, we had equipment failures. We had location failures. You know, one place that we showed up, um, the woman was so, A, she found out we were shooting there, you know, hours before we got there. She was so excited. She wanted to redo her living room before we got there. So we show up on a location next to a busy road with no windows, because she called her contractor to come in and rip out the windows that morning so we'd be able to shoot her new windows in the movie. And, of course, we can't shoot anything while these guys are hammering. <laughs> exactly. And then as soon as we start shooting the scene, the first thing we do is draw the blinds because we can't look out the windows. So, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a lot of nuttiness and kookiness <laughs> surrounding this. And so the thing that we held on to were these actors and how they engaged truthfully with one another. And in and, and getting, getting their relationships to unfold on screen saved us. That's what gives this movie its heart. Thanks so much for joining us. Real pleasure. Thank you. Denver director Adam Lipsius's new film is Amy and Sophia, which debuts this weekend at the Denver Film Festival. He spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. A note that Lipsius is a member of CPR's Community Advisory Board. Connie Theos has been sheep ranching on her family's 4,000-acre spread near Meeker for most of her 72 years. She has been named this year's Colorado Wool Grower of the Year for her lifelong advocacy of the sheep industry. She's the third member of the Theos family to earn that honor. Her late father, Nick, and her cousin, Angelo, have also been recognized. Earlier this year, Connie Theos took a break from her daily chores to speak with me. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure to speak with you. And I, I will say that sheep have been a big part of, of your 72 years, really since day one. On the day you were born, your dad was out tending sheep in a mountain snowstorm and didn't get to see you until you were 10 days old. And your earliest memories are of perching on a fence to help watch over sheep in their pens. Connie, have you ever felt that you've had enough of sheep? Absolutely not. They're the greatest animals in the world. What makes you say that? Well, I, I really truly believe that um, there's a reason that we hear, you know, uh, about in religion that about shepherds. Uh, sheep provide food. They provide fiber. Um, they provide. They provide everything you need. And in many parts of the world. Um, they sustain total societies. Yeah. How are they as company? How are sheep as, as to, just to hang out with? Actually, right now we have 12 bum lambs here, and they become really attached to people just like your dog would or any, anything else. You kind of have to watch them so they don't jump in your truck and want to go with you. Um, they're, they're good companions in the sense of if you take them as, as bum lambs. But as far as when they're out um, on the open range, I would say the biggest thing that you see is total. there's a total peace about them. They are good for the inside of you just to sit and watch them eat. Mm. You know, they're, they're just good animals. You're talking about bum lambs. Those are, those are weak lambs. No, uh, no, these are orphan lambs. Orphan lambs. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, and so the care of sheep, which you raise for both wool and meat, has always come first on the Theos Ranch. 
Uh, are, are there other times besides your birth um, when life has taken a, a backseat to sheep? Oh, I'd say many times. Um, looking back, you know, there might have been a time when, as a family, we were all going to go to town to the movie. When Meeker still had a movie, we don't anymore. Hmm. And something would happen, and big disappointment. Didn't get to go to the show because the ULAMs got in the alfalfa field. You nice. know, those kinds of things happen all the time with the, in the sheep industry. Um, you think you have a plan, and something happens, and it gets changed. But we we just do it because it's the way we were we were raised and we enjoy it. And boy, I'll tell you, there's no better way to grow up than on a ranch. Yeah, your family has been sheep ranching in Northwest Colorado for nearly a century. At one point, the Theos Ranch covered around fifteen thousand acres. How how did the Theos Ranching enterprise begin? Uh, my grandfather came from Greece. And um, at one point in time, he was—he used to say that they unloaded the Greeks in Utah off the train and the Bascos in Nevada. And uh, they worked in the coal mines, he and his—who became his brothers-in-law. And they were approached by a banker from Bernal, Utah, who said, is there anyone here who knows about sheep? And they said, yeah, we do. And... So he made him a deal that if they would gather these sheep that the bank had loaned money on and the fellow who had borrowed the money took off, that uh, they could have the sheep and he would help them get in business. He just needed to gather up uh, his investment. And that's really how they started. Mm. And that was in Utah. And, of course, at that time that was prior to the Taylor Grazing Act. And so public land, they used that. And um, then at that time as well, the mines up around Leadville, et cetera, were, all those tailings were starting to get covered with weeds. So the government paid the train fare for sheep people to haul their sheep to that high country to eat those weeds. Oh, wow. So it gave them a real opportunity to get started for what it, it would be not a lot of money. You you mentioned the Taylor, that's the Taylor Grazing Act of 1934, which had to do with grazing on, on public lands. And yes. if you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner, and you're listening to Colorado Matters. And we're speaking with Connie Theos, uh, who has been named Colorado Wool Grower of the Year. She joins us from her family's uh, sheep ranch near Meeker, Colorado. And what is a day like for you? Connie, um, tell me when you get up and what the the first chores are. Usually when, if you're here at the ranch, the first thing you have to do is, if there are horses in the corral, you got to feed them. You have to feed the bum lambs um, and, you know, just normal everyday things. And from there you go to move camps or haul water or every day is different. That's kind of what makes it work is there's, there's nothing routine about a sheep ranch. Hmm. Uh, what's the strangest encounter you've had tending sheep? Mm, I suppose um, any time that you come up on uh, sheep that have been, you know, killed by bears and that kind of thing, it, it, it makes you kind of sick to your stomach. Does that, and, does that um, happen a lot? Oh, yes. Yeah. Especially now, there's just so many bear. 
and not much that we could do about it other than with the Wildlife Services uh, Trapper. They're, they're allowed to, to do something about them. But, you know, <clears throat> with um, all of the regulations and things that get put forth uh, by people who are not on the land in our referendum ballots and this kind of thing, it, it makes it very difficult for people in the livestock industry to continue but we love it, and so we just keep fighting. Now, you are reimbursed, right, when an animal is killed? Well, yes, for bear and lion, not for coyotes. Even though they sell um, in order to hunt a coyote, if you're from, you know, just, they do sell a small game license, but we don't get compensated for that. But for every lamb or you that's killed by a bear or lion that you, can, that you find, my dad always said there are four more that you didn't find. Mm. And uh, when you come back in the fall to ship lambs and your tally is off, you know, sometimes by 20%, 25%, then that's a true statement. Yeah, just of, of what the math is. And, of course, your work obviously depends on on the, the seasons. Um, and I want to say that you, you get reimbursed, um, but it, it doesn't cover future lambs from one you, correct? No, it does not. Yeah, and that's that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. Especially when they kill a two-year-old you who has a production cycle of here on the open range of maybe five, six more years. Is it true that you also have a measure of fame around Meeker for your culinary skills with lamb? Oh, no, 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 not me. I'm I'm probably the least uh, domestic inside person. Oh, I can cook lamb, absolutely. Uh-huh. So, but no, um, they're like my cousin Angelo. He's a lot better lamb cook than I am. Okay. They barbecue, and I do want to say there is a, a fourth theist that uh, was Colorado Wool Grower of the Year, and that's my cousin Angelo's son Anthony. And um, yeah, so the family has, t- has taken him. yeah this take this uh, family has taken this honor quite quite a bit the Colorado Wool Grower of the Year and I understand that part of the reason you landed that uh, is not just because of the ranching you do but uh, the work you do in general in sort of the industry of sheep ranching is that right Yes um, promotions uh, adv- advocacy for trying to stay in business. Um, we are, all livestock people have to advocate for themselves because there's no big group of people as the environmental groups uh, have lots and lots of people that join their, you know, join and pay dues or whatever they do. Uh, We don't have that. So we end up advocating for ourselves, which sometimes is a little tough. I understand that it can be difficult to bring in immigrant workers. Is that right? Actually, it's it's the paperwork that's involved and all the regulation and all this kind of thing. Uh, we can't survive in this industry without H-2A workers today. There, are, there just aren't any Americans who will do this job. I mean, we, we have – when you bring in an H-2A worker, you need to advertise for an American worker. And if an American worker applies, then that's who you need to hire. And we don't ever have any American applicants for the job. And it's not necessarily because of salary or anything else. It's because they just don't want to do it. They don't want to be um, out by themselves. Um, 
they, they're just not tied to the land. H two A. That's really what it's all about. Yeah, H two A visas. These are farm worker visas. Uh, in, in just the last few seconds, Connie. In spite of all the challenges, is there anything in the world that would pry you off that ranch now? No. No. No, no. Uh-uh. Thank- Maybe a casket. Okay. <laughs> you don't plan to be buried there? Mm. No, I'm going to be buried here next to my dad. Oh, lovely. So not not even that. Connie, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Connie Theus is Colorado Wool Grower of the Year. We spoke in August from her ranch near Meeker on the Western Slope. This is Colorado Matters. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Lord, I know the road. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road?